This is Glenn Healy. Hi, this is Braden Holpe. This is Daryl Sutter. Hi, this is Brian Burke. This is Jordan Tutu. This is Keith Morrison. This is Kelly Rudy. Hi, this is Scott Hartnell. Hey, everybody. My name is Steel Fleury. This is Tim McAuliffe of Sportsnet, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Wednesday, hump day. Hope everybody's having a great week. I, uh, I, I switched it around. I was gonna. Uh, it was supposed to be an SMP archive episode today, um, but I got to sit down with uh, Dr. Peter McCullough last night, and I thought it was something that I didn't want to sit on for a bunch of days. And so I'll have your SMP archive for you Monday. We're just gonna rotate it around this week, and uh, I thought, man, here's a guy that I've been watching um, through uh, the last probably six months, and really like his uh, his, you know his his knowledge base on what's going on and where he's sitting at, um, being, you know, right in the thick of things and, and talking, uh, and dealing with, uh, everything that's going on. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to get this out cause I, I see how quickly things are changing. And I just thought, you know, interviewing him Tuesday night, let's get it out Wednesday for people to hear. So before we get there, let's get to today's episode sponsors, Carly Koss and Windsor Plywood Builders of the podcast studio table for everything wood. These are the guys I, I keep saying deck season is flying by us. Well, I'm not kidding. It's it's middle of August now. Um, but if you're looking for any upgrades, they are stocked up on their micro pro Sienna brown treated lumber. So if you've got a, back, a backyard project on the go, stop in and see the group at Windsor Plywood. Uh, <laughs> they're off on their Instagram page and do a little creep and creep in. And you can see some of the cool projects they've been a part of. And whether we're talking about mantles, decks, windows, doors, or sheds, these are the guys, 780-875-9663. Trophy Gallery located downtown Lloyd Minster is Canada's supplier for glass and crystal awards is uh, you know we march on and and uh, you're looking to to maybe have a little bit of fun whether you're you know a golf tournament uh, I see ball tournaments firing up um, well they've been firing up for a while uh, it won't be long and hopefully we'll have some hockey tournaments going on again make sure you uh, get your trophies all done up the team over at trophy gallery Clint and Dean they man they they make some sharp, sharp hardware. You can check them out online, trophygallery.ca. Uh, another thing is if you stop into their, their shop location, they have signed uh, sports memorabilia. We had that uh, Sidney Crosby signed jersey. Geez, that didn't last very long. That's a little while ago now, but it uh, it literally didn't even get hung up in the studio and it was out the door. So go to uh, downtown Lloyd Minster or visit them, trophygallery.ca. They are Canada's awards store. Jen Gilbert and team for over 45 years since 1976, the dedicated realtors of Cobalt Bank or Cityside Realty have served Lloyd Minster and the surrounding area. They offer star power, providing their clients with seven-day-a-week access because they know big life decisions are not made during office hours. Those are very true words. That's Cobalt Banker, Cityside Realty for everything real estate. Make sure you give them a call any time of day, that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, 780-875-3343 and let them find, uh, you know, a new house for you. And if you get that new house, look no further than mortgage broker Jill Fisher. Now, obviously, her name says it all. She probably serves the areas of Lloydminster, Bonneville, Cold Lake, and Vermilion. And she's looking forward to working with you for all your mortgage needs. Uh, you get that house and you, uh, you're wondering about signing a deal and you want to get the best mortgage uh, po- or mortgage rate possible, or maybe you're like myself and you're renewing and you don't know what on earth to do, uh, give her a call, 780-872-2914, or stop in at jfisher.ca and take a look at what she can do for you. I mean, she's going to save you some money. Clay Smiley and Profit River, uh, update on the new building. Concrete is being poured, interior walls and offices are being framed, and the front showroom is being painted. Uh, they specialize, of course, Profit River in importing firearms from the United States uh, States of America. They pride themselves in making the process as easy for all their customers as humanly uh, possible. Uh, they t- do all the appropriate paperwork on both sides of the border because none of us want to do it. None of us want to do it. So deal with the team from Profit River, and they'll get what you want uh, up here. Just go to ProfitRiver.com and check them out today. They are the major retailer of firearms, optics, and accessories serving all of Canada. And uh, SMP Billboard, uh, if you're looking for any, well, A, if you haven't seen it, head towards the airport. Um, the team of Read and Write, if you're looking for any outdoor signage, can uh, can hook you up with that. 
and they do amazing work. I always look at the wall clo- uh, the wall quote I have in my office. If you're looking for some cool work to go on your walls, uh, they do that as well. Or the frosted glass window. I mean, they just do it all. Give them a call, 306-825-5111, and uh, they can get you hooked up. Gartner Management is a Lloyd Minster-based company specializing in all types of rental properties to help meet your needs. Whether you're looking for a small office or a 6,000-square-foot commercial space, give Wade Gartner a call today, all right? 780-808-5025. And if you're in any of these businesses... Let them know you heard about them from the podcast, right? Now, let's get on that T-Bar 1 tale of the tape. A doctor first and foremost. Internal medicine, epidemiology, and a cardiologist. He also holds titles as an editor and a professor. I'm talking about Dr. Peter McCullough. So buckle up. Here we go. My name is Peter McCullough. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. So today I have joining me Dr. Peter McCullough. Um, so first off, sir, thank you so much for joining me. Well, Sean, thanks for having me. I can tell you're a terrific uh, hockey fan. <laughs> yes, uh, as you could tell from my smile, the jersey's on the wall. Um, proud to be Canadian and uh, grew up a hockey player and 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 traveled into your fine country and across the world playing it. So. Well, you know, our Dallas Stars, uh, the year before last, we made it all the way to Stanley Cup. We ran out of gas against Tampa Bay, and uh, <laughs> Tampa Bay is a good team. They are back this year. You know, I got fond memories of the Edmonton Oilers beating your so-called Dallas Stars uh, before they won the Stanley Cup back in the 90s, and those were some fun years where we were the absolute underdog, and we found a way to beat you. <laughs> Great times. I hope hockey, uh, I tell you, Dallas Stars is terrific to go to games. And I hope we're back. I hope we're back in the mix soon. So it's great to mix it up with the Canadians. Absolutely. Now, I'd love to sit and talk to you about hockey and maybe, uh, you know, a different time and age we'd get to do so. Um, But that's not where we sit. And that's certainly uh, not why I brought you on. Uh, I wish it was to talk about Connor McDavid beating up on the Stars. But maybe, uh, sir, it seems. part and partial to everything I do now. Could you give off your credentials to the listeners so they, they understand who's talking to them and, and we'll start there. Well, I'm in Dallas, Texas. I'm a doctor, a medical doctor. I am a board certified internal medicine doctor and cardiologist and I practice both. I maintain my boards in both specialties and I'm also trained as an epidemiologist. I trained at University of Michigan School of Public Health and Epidemiology. I see patients in my practice every week, but I'm also academically involved. I'm the uh, editor of uh, two major journals, Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine. I've been an editor there for my, starting my third decade, I believe, and then Cardiorenal Medicine. I've been focused on heart and kidney disease until COVID came along, and now I've really uh, set my sights on COVID-19. I've dropped everything to do my part, uh, in a sense, as a patriot or as a doctor uh, to help out in the pandemic. And I've particularly been focused on filling this void on early treatment where uh, there's been such a focus on other things outside of treating the acutely sick person to prevent hospitalization and death. You know what most people uh, fear the most about COVID-19? They actually fear getting sick enough to require hospitalization, being put in isolation, never seeing their family members again, and then not making it out of the hospital. Well, I, uh, when I got informed or, you know, we kind of conversed that you were going to come on, I was excited. I, I, uh, I was one of those, I'm a young guy or, you know, to the kids I'm old, but you know, to most I'm young, I'm 35. And so I, I fit in that age group that is young enough to not necessarily worry so much about COVID-19. Um, and certainly there isn't, uh, so far, um, a mounting risk to my age group, uh, that I know of, but, your interviews and your testimonies to Senate, I got to watch that, uh, I don't know, four to six months ago, and it just hit me so hard how you spoke, what you spoke about, how um, you didn't throw down COVID as you know laughable and, and uh, wasn't really happening. You didn't go into maybe some of the conspiracy theories. What you talked about was something, you know, like you say, the early treatment and everything else. And it kind of hit me of like, wow, this is a really... Uh, interesting uh, guy. And I started following along with your work and your interviews and it's really impacted how I look at things and to get you on here to talk about it um, is 
really uh, interesting to me, and I hope my listeners will follow along. Um, I was wondering, how does your story go with COVID? You say you drop everything to to try and tackle it, to do your patriotic or maybe your world duty now to try and figure this out. How, you know, in the early days to, to getting to maybe even sit down in Senate, how, how does that story play out? So how does that happen? Well, <clears throat> I um, had achieved a, a probably a pretty strong status in my field. So I do research in both cardiology and nephrology. So in that space, um, I'm considered uh basically the most published person in that field in the world in history. I have over 650 citations in the National Library of Medicine. Most people will get professor of medicine status with like 25 papers. And so compared to the media doctors you see on TV, I'm at a whole different level in terms of evidence review and what I've done in my career and my contributions. I've published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I've been uh, the, the overall editor of the first major textbook in my field. I've had several breakthroughs that I've contributed to, largely in in vitro diagnostics, but I've been very involved in clinical trials. I've led the data safety and monitoring board in clinical trials, understand them very well. And when COVID-19 began, uh, initially, it was all hands on deck. I looked at it, I told the doctors around you, I said, you know what, this is our medical Super Bowl. I said, this is the time, this is going to separate the men from the boys in medicine, big time. I could see it right now. I could see it right now. I saw all different types of behaviors, people heading for the hills, fear-driven behaviors, people trying to, to uh, sequester masks, uh, 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 people um, segregating themselves. And there were heroic doctors. Believe me, we had meetings. The doctors who said, listen, I'm going to go on these inpatient COVID units and I'm going to just take it. Uh, those doctors were heroes. And when things started really heating up, uh, we started to see the stories, right? So uh, it came out of Wuhan, China, Milan. We started communicating with our doctors in Milan. And when things got out of control in Milan, where people started dying is when they ran out of personal protective equipment and they ran out of ventilators and other supplies. And you know, there was a listing one time where there was a thousand doctors who died in Italy, largely the older doctors. So that really spooked the American doctors. And so when it hit New York, we heard all kinds of stories uh, you know, uh, Mario Como was having daily press briefings. Uh, you know, there was talk that General Motors was going to drop building cars and build ventilators. They had a big ship float in the harbor of New York. I mean, the, the fanfare over this was tremendous. And we were communicating with New York and we knew things were getting uh, a pretty uh, uh, heavy there. But uh, when we were talking to our uh, colleagues um, within, uh, honestly, we looked at March, April and May, the question I had is, what are you guys doing to stop the hospitalizations? What are you doing? It's pretty obvious. If you do nothing, more and more people are going to get sick. And the answers were, well, we're not really doing anything. We're focusing on the hospital. And um, as the months went by, I would say March, April, May, uh, we had a, a several, I was on all these task force meetings at my medical center here in Dallas. And I was on all these task force meetings and I kept asking, you know, are, you know, are we going to have a, a tent out in front? Are we going to have a field hospital? You know, where's the, where's the mass unit mentality in handling this? And the idea is, well, no, we're just going to, you know, if patients come in, we're going to play defense and we'll wear hazmat suits. And, and most of the doctors said, hey, I'm shutting down my clinic. I don't want to get my clinic contaminated. And so next thing you know, people started saying, I don't want to get involved with this disease. And I think it was largely driven out of fear. And in the uh, early stages in uh, March, April, May, there wasn't, there was very few cases. So I started, uh, started to become uh, a bit alarmed that if we didn't do something, uh, we could really get snowed. It was pretty obvious. You have to do something before the hospital, before you overwhelm the hospital and all the people in the hospital get sick, we better start treating this at home. So I started working with the Italians. We started learning what worked, what didn't work. When we didn't demand large randomized trials, those take five years. We're not going to have any large trials. We just need signals of benefit and acceptable safety. And we had some leads. We had some leads back from you know, 15 years ago with hydroxychloroquine. It looked like it reduced uh, viral replication with SARS-1. That looked pretty solid. You know, we use it for malaria. We use it for rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. We know how it works, safe and effective, terrific. That looked good. Um, and then, the, then we started hearing about reports in the hospital of people's IVs clotting. And their dialysis lines clotting. And the doctors say, wait, wait a minute, we've we, we never seen a viral infection that causes blood clotting like this. 
Men, and tragically, people would have strokes. Our surgeons reported to us, wow, somebody had a large clot in the aorta, a major blood vessel in the body. We said, we've never seen this before. So we learned within a few months that there was three phases, viral replication, cytokine storm or inflammation, and thrombosis. And by the time the oxygen is going down, that's blood clots. That's not the virus. That's blood clots in the lungs. And we realized we had to get an upstream approach. So quickly, I started uh, uh, publishing. I needed a window to speak to America on this because we were just not seeing anybody taking any action on, on, a, on a federal or state level at all. It, it just was, it was pandemonium. And so I started publishing a series of op-eds uh, in the Hill, and I had a window to America there. Well, I think I published uh, nearly 12 of them over a year. I was a regular contributor. I predicted every single twist and turn of the pandemic. When they were uh, building an army hospital in Dallas back in April or May, I, I published, I said, they're not going to use it. They're not going to use it. The virus isn't moving that way. And I was right. They wasted a massive amount of resources with you know, hundreds, if not thousands of beds in the Dallas County Convention Center, and it wasn't needed. It would, they simply were making a bunch of wrong assumptions in these models. These predictive models were a mess. So um, I want to say by June, we had 55,000 papers in the peer-reviewed literature studying the virus. Not a single paper taught doctors how to treat COVID-19 to prevent hospitalization and death. So I organized a team. We published our first paper, August of 2020, the American Journal of Medicine. The title of the paper was Pathophysiologic Rationale for Early Ambulatory Treatment of COVID-19. And we followed the assumptions that we a single drug is not going to control this virus. So to, to expect a single drug as a cure is ridiculous. We don't even treat strep infections with single drugs. We always use drugs in combination. So we knew it was going to be combination drugs. And so we organized drugs to reduce viral replication, treat the inflammation, and thrombosis as a fundamental principle. Became the most widely downloaded, utilized paper in all of COVID-19 outpatient treatment. We, we quickly had data with ivermectin with monoclonal antibodies that were approved by regulatory agencies. So we had a follow-up paper in reviews in cardiovascular medicine. That's the journal I edit. I organized a dedicated supplement, had a separate uh, uh, editor marshal that uh, supplement forward. We had a whole variety of important papers published, but that second paper uh, now is still at this point in time, it's the cornerstone of care uh, worldwide. There are uh, reduced versions of sequence multi-drug therapy. There's uh, the Frontline Critical Care Consortium has IMEF and MEF Plus. They're kind of uh, a more minimal versions of that. Uh, but that basically is the base of treatment for the world. And so as you can imagine, filling that important gap, I mean, they have millions of people that need to be treated to avoid the hospital. You can imagine uh, the next thing you know, my uh, celebrity status really started to escalate. Now, I wasn't... Um, it wasn't new to me. I had, I had testified uh, in front of the, um, the oversight panel for the FDA in the past. I had been in C-SPAN for hours. I'm the current president of a major medical society, endowed lecturer at Harvard, New York Academy of Sciences. So I, I kind of know what I'm doing on the national scene, uh, but this was at a whole new level. And I was invited to uh, testify in the uh, Texas uh, Senate, the U.S. Senate, multiple state houses, uh, and was very much involved in organizing the United States on the early treatment approach. And without a drop of federal dollars or help or even recognition, we organized the United States. And by early January, we crushed our curves. We had uh, four national telemedicine services, 15 regional, services, regional telemedicine services. We had a roster of treating doctors across the United States. Vast majority of doctors were not going to lift a finger to help COVID patients, but we had hero doctors who are an independent practice. They took a tremendous number of risks. Uh, most of us got COVID ourselves, myself included. They contracted the virus, survived it. A couple of us were in the hospital, um, uh, one on the ventilator, but fortunately everybody survived. And these, this is a modern day story of American heroes that help people in need. If we did not kick it in, I guarantee we would have overflowed our hospitals in January and February, and it would have been, the body bags would have been um, stacking up on the streets. It would have been terrible. And you know what? Other countries went through the same thing. Um, uh, Mexico City, things got way out of control. They crushed their curve with an early treatment approach. India, there was a major flare. That's where the Delta variant came out of. They crushed their curve with multi-drug treatment. Now we're in this flare or this most recent uh, surge of the Delta variant. Uh, which is not responsive to the vaccines. And we know this is a big part of what we're seeing. And in fact, we need early treatment. My phone's been ringing off the hook. In fact, I just had a patient call while we're talking. So we're working hard. The early treatment doctors are working hard. We need help. 
Canada really needs help. I mean, Canada, none of the doctors have, uh, uh, you know, outside of a few hero doctors have even lifted a finger to help Canadians who get COVID-19 at home. Well, I was just about to say, why is it none of us here have heard of early treatment? Like I just, I, and Hey, I could live under a rock. That is very possible, but that isn't a common term I hear anywhere in the media. Certainly not sitting here doing what I do. I just, I don't hear of early treatment and I assume that should be concerning. It should be concerning. Let me tell you, you're a hockey player. What if you got uh, a staph infection after you got cut with a stick? Are, you, are we going to let that staph infection fester on your leg for two weeks and have you come in with uh, blood poisoning and sepsis? Do we treat it that way? How about if you had asthma? Are we going to let you just have a terrible asthma exacerbation of bronchitis and get sick and sick and sick and then come in and we'll put you on the ventilator? Would we ever treat any of those problems that way? Uh, couldn't doctors... Uh, because this is a respiratory illness. Couldn't doctors use common sense? Don't you bet there are some medicines, some inhalers, some steroids and other drugs that work? I mean, come on, people develop blood clotting disorders all the time. I'm a cardiologist. I prescribe blood thinners all day long. Really? I couldn't prescribe blood thinners for this problem, which we know is a super thrombogenic problem. So I, I don't buy that. I don't buy the fact that doctors can't use their skills to help patients as an outpatient. Why would that be? Why... Like, here we are, how many, how many, what, I don't even know how many months are we into this thing now? We're almost in this thing for two years. Uh, wouldn't, you mentioned that there was a good majority of doctors didn't stand up, but there was some, some heroes that stood up, went to the front lines, worked it, worked hard, developed this, got it out to everyone and, and uh, flattened the curve, so to speak, to get you guys so that you weren't, you know, skyrocketing and overloading the, the hospitals and everything. Like, I know you talk to Canadian doctors. Heck, you just talked to a Canadian professor. Isn't there, I mean, and your podcast, uh, Peter, is is talking to doctors and people from all over the world. Isn't there talk amongst, like, shouldn't that information just flow if it's this, like, this is everywhere. Every country is dealing with this. Shouldn't this information just flow immediately? You know, you should give your doctor a call. And I would lay odds, if you called that doctor in March, he would have said, uh, COVID-19, there's no treatment for it. It's untreatable. Sorry, can't help you. If you were to call him again today, 18 months later, he'd give the same answer. And I can tell you between now 18 months, let me tell you what we have. We have 250 supportive papers for hydroxychloroquine. We have 60 papers supportive for ivermectin. We have two randomized trials positive for inhaled budesonide. We have 12 trials and a meta-analysis of oral steroids, all different types that show benefit. We have um, uh, the largest randomized trial done by Canadians, done by Canadians for a simple anti-inflammatory drug called colchicine. 4,000 patients, double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial supporting colchicine. We have lots of observational data suggesting full-dose aspirin and full-dose Anticoagulants. We even have supportive data that supplementing certain vitamin deficiencies plays a role for zinc, vitamin D, uh, some supportive data for vitamin C, uh, uh, quercetin. We have tons of data suggesting not everybody needs to be treated. We can use risk stratification. People over 50 with risk factors need to be treated. Younger people like you don't need to be treated. Believe it or not, we have data and we have uh, a practice among dentists that using various mouthwashes and rinses reduces the viral burden in the mouth. Studies that have shown this, same thing with nasal sprays. We have all kinds of approaches. The interesting thing is that doctors still have it in their mind that this giant mountain of information doesn't exist. In doctors' minds, it's like, no, there's no treatment. Sorry, go to the hospital. I've never seen it before in my life. This complete and total dismissal of a massive mountain of evidence. That is wild. Like th what you just said there, that entire speech, and I got to credit your memory for all of that. That's, that's uh, photographic, if I may say so. That's, I would, I don't know, you guys are like, the guys in the ICU are, are essentially detectives, right? You're trying to find out what on earth is going on because the whole point of your job is to keep people from dying. And then if you hear of a country 
man, they're having some success. I just assume you, you pick up the phone and you know, one may assume that you go, well, maybe it's not that easy. Maybe there's problems in between countries and everything else. And then I sit and listen to your podcast and I go, yeah, but here's a guy, a doctor going around talking to all these doctors and they're all talking about the same stinking thing. Why on earth isn't all the government setting up like, just like a tat, like, man, we got to figure this out here. We got some success over here. Why don't you try this? Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. It's called best practices. How come the Canadian government doesn't have a team of doctors who actually getting experience treating COVID-19 We're 18 months into it. And somebody must be getting some experience. Why don't we have a team of doctors working with international groups and figuring this thing out? Listen, India just went through the Delta wave. Why, why don't we have Indian doctors working? You got a mountain of Indian doctors in Canada. They probably, probably know each other. Why don't we, why don't you guys work together and figure this out in teams? Uh, why don't we have any peer review? Why don't we have uh, any checks on our policies? Like if something's not working, why aren't we changing uh, our, our practices uh, uh, midstream? Uh, I think we should have had through the entire pandemic, a weekly update on treatment. If not a week, if not a monthly update, what we have in the United States is we have two sets of guidelines, the National Institutes of Health and Infectious Disease Society of America that basically have only addressed inpatient care. And they really put a chill on outpatient care. They basically say, listen, don't treat it as an outpatient. Just don't treat it. Uh, nothing. Uh, the, the TGA in Australia has a set of guidelines and every single statement is don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. They don't actually say what to do for COVID-19, but they're so clear on what not to do for COVID-19. So there's something about a mindset. It's almost like a mass uh, neurosis or some type of um, disturbia that's going on in the minds of doctors uh, that they're not meeting. They're not collaborating. No international collaboration. Um, uh, it's just something fell over doctors' minds where they were not going to treat COVID-19. Everyone was going to play defense. They were going to hunker down. They're going to be in isolation, everything kind of in shutdown, lockdown mode and, and, and wait out the virus. And we just keep waiting and waiting and waiting. And every time we lock down more and wear more masks and what have you, the virus just seems to, to go hunting wherever it can find susceptible people. You know, I have to assume that you speaking up and talking You've been uh, maybe privy to uh, some pretty nasty things said about you and everything else, or maybe not. But when I mentioned I, I last night, when I found out you're coming on tonight, I put it out on, on social media. I, I was like thrilled. Like I, I've followed you now for, like I say, I don't know, four or six months, somewhere in there. And the amount of people that said, you didn't know what the, what you were talking about, that you're just, uh, you know, I'll, there's a list of words out there. I was like, like, what? I'm like, here's a guy who's like right in the thick of things talking about it. And on top of that, you have the podcast and I've listened to you talk to a handful of doctors now from all over the world talking about this. And I'm going like, I am missing something. And at times I almost feel, uh, Peter, like I'm, 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 you know, maybe I'm too far down the rabbit hole here. And I'm like, maybe I am going, uh, maybe I'm, I'm going to one side, but then I sit and listening and I go, no, like, it's the same thing I listened in all your interviews, sit and talk in front of Senate and everything else. I'm going like, what am I missing? Or is it just that this message is being um, somewhat censored or pushed down or controlled? I, I, I'm trying to figure this out. Do you know, I've never had a single one of those detractors ever challenge me on anything. Really? On anything. They can't even look me in the eye. And I said, listen, I'm just giving you the support for these studies. There's the evaluation of the studies. And they can't even look at me in the eye. It's just the, I think there's a, a sense of guilt and shame. And uh, these doctors are never going to admit they should have treated patients early. They're never going to take any responsibility for these hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, and they're going to try to play this, this game as long as they possibly can. And it's a walk of shame. This is a really dark time for medicine right now. And the doctors, every single doctor that told COVID patients, there's nothing they could do, nothing. I mean, really? I mean, the next patient who calls with asthma, they can get an inhaler and they can get some prednisone and steroid and they can get some antibiotics, but a COVID patient gets nothing. 
Really? Nothing? Not even a milligram of treatment? You know, the National Institutes of Health and the guidelines, they say, listen, you wait it out at home. Don't do anything. Wait it out at home. Don't do anything. And then when you come in the hospital, still don't do anything until the oxygen levels go down. Okay, now we'll start remdesivir. Do you know how inept that is? By that time, the virus is long gone. The oxygen saturation is going down because of blood clotting. The Italians showed us that in autopsy. Every single autopsy study shows at the end is blood clotting. It's not pneumonia. It's blood clots in the lungs. And they're going to start an antiviral 14 days or 21 days into this illness. It's absolutely what's in the minds of people right now is nuts. And they, and they, and they create all these, um, all these barriers for themselves. They just, well, we can't do anything unless there's large randomized trials. I mean, can you imagine if there was a, 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 we're in a war and someone has a gushing wound and blood is pumping out. And can you imagine you and I st- sitting there and saying, well, let's wait for randomized trials before we put this gauze on the wound. Or how about this? Why don't we wait for FDA approval so we can use it? I mean, can you imagine this idea that you're going to wait for FDA FDA approval? FDA approval for a typical drug from the time of drug development to the time it gets approved is 17 years. We're going to wait that long? Really? We got to use the drugs that are available. You know, I'll give you another example. Um, uh, Operation Warp Speed, one of the things that came out of it was monoclonal antibodies. These are IV infusions that we can give. We can give them inpatient. We can give them outpatient. As long as we catch people early, they work. And there was a paper published in the journal of the Infectious Disease Society of America, a wonderful journal, showing every day that you wait, the mortality goes up. If we start these monoclonal antibodies, let's say for high-risk seniors, people over age 65, people who know are going to get in trouble with COVID, they work. So the United States government purchases 500 million doses of these antibodies, more than every person in the United States. And there's no mention of these. There's no public service announcement. Our officials from the CDC and FDA, while they're on the TV morning, noon, and night promoting the vaccine, they'll never promote the use of these antibodies, let alone people know where they are. Um, When I testified in the Texas Senate, there was a a doctor ahead of me, a woman who said her father was in his 90s, was really sick with COVID. He got the monoclonal antibodies and it saved him. Great story. I got up there and I blasted the committee. I said, where are these antibodies? How about the next senior how does the next senior find out where these antibodies are? Well, there should ought to be, same thing in Canada. There's, you should know every hospital that's stocking monoclonal antibodies if you have them and make them available. President Trump got them and he breathes through COVID. Shouldn't that be a great working example? These products work. They're fully FDA, EUA approved. They're just as approved as this vaccine and they don't get any airtime whatsoever. We got, they go unused, by the way, on the shelf. And to make matters worse, we have these artificial lines of use. So for instance, if someone's an outpatient, we can give the infusion. But the minute they click over into the uh, an inpatient, even if they're still in the ER, nope, they can't receive the antibodies. They're sitting in the same room and somebody in the computer clicked them from inpatient to outpatient and suddenly we can't use the antibodies. That happened to me and a patient last week. I said, really? I mean, c- could we come up with any more barriers to give some sick person with COVID-19 a milligram of treatment? a milligram of treatment, and it gets worse because we have drugs that are versatile. For instance, ivermectin really works inpatient, outpatient. It's simple, cheap, effective, 60 supportive studies. Do you know in the United States, there are sick senior citizens in the hospital. The families find out about ivermectin, which is used broadly outside the United States and outside of Canada. And they ask the doctors, can we please give my mother some ivermectin? You know, she's not getting better. No, won't do it, won't do it. They actually have to get an attorney, and there's an attorney now who's famous in doing this. His name is Ralph Lorigo, and he'll actually take the case and go to court and say, give this poor senior citizen some ivermectin. I mean, if the patient had scabies or had um, pinworms or something, we'd use ivermectin, no problem. But suddenly in COVID, we can't give a milligram of ivermectin. And then shamefully, the courts have to tell the doctors and hospitals, give grandma some ivermectin. And this has happened in New York State, in Illinois, and elsewhere in Louisiana, how shameful is that, that we have to get the courts involved to tell doctors to give some medicine? I just had a patient in the ICU at my hospital last week, and the family was there, and it was a heart attack. It wasn't COVID, but we, we negotiate drugs all the time. Well, he doesn't do with this. He'd rather have this one. We negotiate drugs all the time. Suddenly in COVID, we can't negotiate a single milligram of treatment. It's just something there. What I'm telling you is there's something disturbing in the minds of doctors 
where all roads lead to no treatment, inadequate treatment, more suffering, more hospitalization and death. It's in the minds of doctors. And it is, I've never seen anything like this in my, in my life. And it's no wonder they're writing things in. These doctors ought to be ashamed of themselves. They can't even come up to me and look me in the eye. It's the, the, the behavior is so shameful. You must, you know, you've spoken a, a lot about the doctors that aren't doing anything, but you mentioned there's some real um, heroes out there that are really um, doing the work, pres- prescribing the drugs, finding ways to save patients. You must see the, the good in it. And I'm wondering, uh, are you starting to see more of it? Like, are you starting to see more doctors pick up the 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 pace and and get on, you know, and and grab a hold of this good news and try it out for themselves? You know, it's slow. Uh, we had um, in my health system, I was the only one doing it for the longest time. Finally, during one of the surges, I had a family doctor reach out to me and say, "Listen, just send me your protocols. I'm just so tired of these phone calls. I just need to take care of it." Uh, the the, uh, the doctors have organized so. Uh, we do have the uh, Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. They keep an entire directory of treating doctors across the United States. They had the original home, pre- home treatment guide. We have the Frontline Critical Care Consortium. They have Math Plus, IMeth, uh, and now we recover protocols. Uh, these doctors are critical care doctors, but are reaching out to um, uh, early uh, outpatients to try to prevent hospitalization. We have American Frontline Doctors. These doctors basically have organized because the American Medical Association, the American College of Physicians, the um, Infectious Disease Society of America, the NIH, and the FDA basically have, have done everything they can to actually impair outpatient treatment. Do you know the FDA has warnings saying, do not use hydroxychloroquine, do not use ivermectin. Like that's a helpful recommendation. You know, they, they, they put out these warnings for other drugs, honestly, and we, 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 we read them and we understand them, but this actually put a chill. Do you know that there were emails that went through these health systems Whatever you do, don't treat a patient with hydroxychloroquine. Do you know the American Medical Association said that? And they, they, fought, they put it out to the pharmacy association. The pharmacy association said, you know, whatever you do, don't do. If somebody comes in, they want hydroxychloroquine for COVID, don't give it to them. And they have all these different protocols that they've been doing over time to block patients from getting drugs. It, it's gone on all over. Do you know in France, hydroxychloroquine was over the counter? What did they do? They made a prescription. Right. You know, basically in February to make it hard for patients to get hydroxychloroquine in Australia in, in, in early in April, they put on the books. If a doctor attempts to help a patient with hydroxychloroquine, it's punishable with jail time. Since when do doctors get put in jail for appropriate prescription of safe off-label generic drugs? I mean, it keeps going and we can keep going. I mean, the second largest plant that makes hydroxychloroquine in the world world mysteriously burns down outside of Taipei. It keeps going. Doctor in South Africa trying to help patients with ivermectin gets put in jail. Okay, this, I mean, this keeps going. Um, uh, uh, you know, a fraudulent paper trying to make hydroxychloroquine look unsafe was published in Lancet and held up there for two weeks. Everybody knew it was a fraud. We, we, Lancet is like New England Journal of Medicine. It never pro- publishes fraudulent papers. They pull it down and say, sorry, you know, you know, no explanation, just a fake paper we put out there to scare the world on hydroxychloroquine. It's just, you can't, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, you know, ivermectin is a very versatile drug. It's got supportive data. Uh, there was a paper, you know, of course, all the good papers can't get the light of day in the journal. Uh, so there was a paper that finally gets published in JAMA. It's a tiny paper out of South America. And we start looking at it. We read the methods and we say, wait a minute, both groups were getting ivermectin. So you can't see a differential between the two groups. Hundreds of letters of editor support and say, listen, this is an invalid study. JAMA's like, sorry, I guess, you know, we, you know, we don't have anything to say. The paper stands. Canadian paper, cold Corona, colchicine, colchicine, Montreal Heart Institute, best clinical trials operation we have in North America. 6,000 patient randomized trial, colchicine versus placebo, double blind, randomized, the best infrastructure anywhere in the world. They, they had treatment centers. They would, they would courier out the drugs to patients' home. Cadillac, Cadillac, 6,000 patients. What do they do? They stop at 4,500. Why? No explanation why they would stop at 4,500 because they're going to be close to showing a statistically significant difference on the primary endpoint, but they stop at 4,500 for no explanation. They should have pulled it to 6,000. At 4,500, 
The overall primary endpoint, which included all the patients randomized as called intent to treat principles, just missed statistical significance. But when you zeroed in on the 4,100 that actually were PCR positive, you know, because when they, at first you don't know who's going to be positive, the 4,100 that actually had COVID-19 primary endpoint of hospitalization and death was statistically reduced with colchicine. This is prospective 4,100 patients, prospective double-blind randomized placebo control trial. You can't get better quality data. What happens? Colcorona goes to New England Journal of Medicine. They slow walk it, slow walk it, slow walk it. Sorry, not interested, rejected. They go to JAMA, slow walk it, slow walk it, slow walk it, rejected. They go to Lancet, slow walk it, slow walk it, and finally gets uh, triaged to a lower tier Lancet journal. The data are blocked from Canadians and Americans for basically about six months. This is a simple pill. It's dirt cheap. It cost me $6 to prescribe it. And to this day, most Canadians don't know that a Canadian trial of a simple oral available drug reduces the risk of hospitalization and death. And the vast majority of Canadian doctors would never even think of prescribing it to help a Canadian. That is how disturbed we are right now. That's how off axis the world is right now in the world of biomedical research. That's a lot. That was like that that's going to hurt some brains. That's going to hurt my brain. I want to switch to what's going on right now with, with the Delta variant. Um, I said, I can only sit here and speak as a, the, the common guy, the, the guy who's got a young family and just hears what mainstream media and, and everything's writing and talking about. They're saying how, you know, a couple things. And uh, if you want to speak to them, I'd love to hear your thoughts. One is it's more, um, the Delta variant is on the surge and it's attacking kids and younger, um, you know, people closer to my age range and in, in, in that. And there is a strong push on in Canada. I'm speaking around where I live for everyone to get vaccinated to help stop the surge. Um, the second thing I, I would say that's going on right now with, uh, with the, the outbreaks is that, they're making this, they're dividing the population again into it's being caused because people are unvaccinated. So there's this real twist on the numbers. There's a real uh, twist on the fear of your children getting it and everything else. When in the first, you know, I, I don't know, 18 months of this thing in Alberta specifically, nobody under 20 has passed away from it, let alone, you know, I haven't heard of many children get sick from this. So I don't know what your thoughts are, but I know when I mentioned you were coming on, a lot of people express concern about Delta. Uh, from what we hear, it's, you know, it's coming, it's going to be bad, but what does that actually mean? Okay, so let's talk about it. Um, in Canada and the United States, uh, if we go calendar month by calendar month through the entire pandemic, we've always had strains of the virus. So initially in uh, Milan, New York, it's called the Wuhan wild type virus. That was the original virus. So the virus is a ball. Everyone would recognize a ball and there's sticks on the surface of the ball. Many of these sticks, right? The stick is called the spike protein and it has a hinge joint in it. And the hinge joint is called the furin cleavage joint. That was genetically modified. So it can actually lock right into a human cell and get right in. Um, uh, and that's what made it so contagious. If it wasn't modified in the Chinese lab with that gain of function research, it would be like the common cold, because if it doesn't have that lock mechanism, it, it just, it's just not going to get in. And so you get a little cold, but it doesn't ravage your body. So the gain of function made it dangerous to humans. So that, that's the first part of this. So as it hit Milan in New York, this is the fresh, dangerous gain of function product of gain of function research, and people are dropping dead like crazy. So what happens over time is the virus is replicating itself over and over again. It's going to make mistakes and, 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 the, and it's going to read the code and it's going to produce a few different types of virus where it's just, it's not, just not identical. So then these variants were produced. And so uh, once we're a year into it, I can tell you it was clear that the agencies were all running the variant reports, the CDC, the United Kingdom. And we had 14 strains or 15 strains or 12 strains each month. And we always had Delta. We always had Alpha, Lambda. We always had Eta. We always had these strains. You can actually see the CDC report and you can see all the different strains. And so there's variation because there's different changes in the code. 
what happened was vaccination. Once we put what's called a non-lethal evolutionary pressure on a virus or a bacteria for that matter, and we now change the thing. So not, now people are not equally susceptible. Before vaccination, everybody was kind of equally successful. Some people had cross-reactivity. Obviously, if you have the virus, you can't get it against so you. So you are no, you're inert now. The virus can't do anything to you. And so, and so um, uh, we had this uh, uh, situation, which was manageable. Well, what happened was when India, when they started using the Sinovac vaccine, that's a, it's a killed whole virus vaccine. They did pockets of vaccination in Mashtara, India. Um, once we get to about 25% of a local population vaccinated, which they did in some pockets, they haven't overall done that at all, but in a few pockets, then you actually invite one of the strains to step forward and become the dominant strain. Whichever can scoot past the vaccine becomes the dominant strain. It makes sense. Just like with a bacteria, if you had a staph infection and you gave everybody penicillin, I can tell you a few staff are going to become resistant to penicillin and they're going to emerge as the dominant strain. It makes perfect sense. In a paper by Neeson and colleagues uh, out of uh, Mayo Clinic and a company called Inference in Boston, they published on this. They said, listen, you get to 25% vaccinated, you're going to get a dominant strain. Now, the, the conclusion of the paper was, listen, this is a good thing, provided the dom dominant strain is milder. You kind of, you, you reduce the playing field of uh, strains available. Well, sure enough, Delta came out of India. And what we figured out is that, uh, boy, it was like wildfire. And you heard about uh, India. And, and the good thing about it, it's very responsive to early treatment. Lots of American doctors helped out. Real hero doctors, Dr. Harpo Magnet out of Washington, he dropped everything to help the Indians. He had a lot of connections. And they used a whole variety of things, monoclonal antibodies, oral drugs, and they crushed their curve over there. Terrific. Um, uh, but then the Delta variant, because there's so much traffic between India and the UK, basically set up shop in the UK. It also set up shop in Israel. And the Delta variant, which is seven mutations in that spike protein, even had a, another mutation. It was peppering the mutations right around the gain of function uh, furin cleavage joint. And it was, in a sense, taking the starch out of the furin cleavage joint. Um, uh, 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 Delta Plus, now in the UK report on August uh, 6th, the UK, the 20th version of the report, they now have like 20 additional mutations that have, been, have become into Delta. They're not that frequent. So Delta is a super mutated uh, spike protein. And in a paper by Venkata Krishnan, and that's the reason why I'm so careful in citing the papers, because I know you already said there's detractors saying that I'm, that I'm you know, giving misinformation. I am giving every citation you can look up, it's there. So fact checkers, go get it. Um, uh, Venkata Krishnan showed what's called antigenic escape. That spike protein is changing, so the antibodies can't stick to it. And it's been pretty clear now it's been shown Pfizer cannot hit the Delta. The Pfizer vaccine cannot hit Delta. So now in Israel, where it's all Delta, they have, and I'll read the data for um, your fact checkers, uh, Sean, just so you can really be um, A plus with them. Israel has um, the week uh, for the month of July, Israel um, has had uh, uh, 5,000, I'm sorry, Israel's had 15,634 COVID cases, 15,634 COVID cases in the month of July. Israel's not a huge country. That's a big number of people. 86% were fully vaccinated. Of those in the hospital sick with COVID-19, 65% fully vaccinated, Sean. The Center for Disease Control pushed forward from Departments of Community Health, and they don't have all the cases, but the ones they confirmed CDC up through July 26 had 6587 fully vaccinated Americans in the hospital. In the hospital, 19% of them died. Okay. Uh, Chow and colleagues just published from Oxford, University of Oxford, uh, Tropical Medicine, Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, a hospital where everyone's vaccinated. And then some people start getting COVID. They lock it down. And even when they're completely locked down, people can't go in and out for two weeks in this hospital. Um, uh, it was all Delta. They had 16 cases emerge. Uh, and it was obvious it must have been spreading. They had 69 cases uh, total. They showed that the viral load with Delta in these vaccinated patients was 251 times the viral load of someone with a prior version unvaccinated. 251 times. The vaccinated in the Chow paper were massive viral. They're like viral Petri plates. Okay, that's vaccinated. Uh, Hetemaki from Finland, 
nursing home studies, series of nursing homes, they, the healthcare workers, the poor nursing home patients can't get out, right? They're sitting ducks. The healthcare workers, 45 healthcare workers get the Delta variant. Um, 24 of them were fully vaxxed. Healthcare workers, none of them die, but they give it to the nursing home patients. 58 nursing home patients get it. 18 died. Of those nursing home patients who died, 12 were vaccinated. Last so, paper. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, well, I, I, I just, I get, I get the point you're making here. I, I'm making the point. The vaccines don't work. They, they are not stopping the Delta variant. I mean, even Mayo Clinic and Inference have got, uh, you know, they try to calculate vaccine efficacy, which is really hard outside of a randomized trial, but they try to do it from standard equations. They've got Pfizer at 42% protection. Israel's got Pfizer at 17% protection. Mayo Clinic go to Moderna. Israel's which, got it at seventeen percent. Yeah, it's like it's like nothing. It's like it's like a useless um, a shot. So why why then, Peter? And I know this is uh, this is not your area of expertise, but you know all I got to do is look around. Universities right now are in, around Canada pushing that everyone on campus be vaccinated. And let me tell you. If there is anyone who steps out about that, they are absolutely scolded as as being, I don't know, from a different century, a different place, and a piece of you know what. Schools are, are pushing, the teachers are saying they want everyone vaccinated so that they're providing a safe spot. And I, I hear that and I go, so what am I like, what can I, what can I tell, what can you tell my listeners that Either, either if they're vaccinated or unvaccinated, about the Delta, it's coming, early uh, treatment, if they can find that, where do they find that, so that they can feel comfortable that if they do develop things, there is something there to make them be like, it's okay. Because I assume okay. early treatment works on both. It's not like it's only for one set of people. Right. And we treat them the same. Listen, uh, uh, I can tell you right now, my clinical practice, I've got two more patients who called me during this interview. Um, I probably have 60% of my patients are unvaccinated. That's fine. Texas, only 40% of people took the vaccine. And um, I have 40% of my COVID patients have been fully vaccinated. I just had a fully vaccinated man uh, get COVID. He brought it home and he infected his whole family. She just, I just talked to him uh, and the, the wife in the last hour. It is clear the vaccines are failing. Certainly Pfizer appears to be failing the most. We do have data from, uh, uh, I believe the first author is Purinic from Mayo Clinic and Inference, showing Moderna is still holding out at about 72% protection. And we don't know about Johnson & Johnson, and we don't know about AstraZeneca. But what Canadians and Americans should ask is, doesn't our government owe us a report on how the vaccines are doing? Doesn't the government, shouldn't the, if, you've got, if you've got an array of vaccines, Sean, and you have to go to college, don't you wanna pick the best vaccine? You just don't want to take any one, right? Don't you want to pick the winner? Should, don't they understand right now which vaccine is winning and which vaccine is losing? Well, why? And we have plenty of vaccines. The vaccine centers have been empty for months. The vaccines, they have overproduced them. They're laying around everywhere. Why can't our governments tell our listeners what are the best vaccines right now? What are the best vaccines to choose? But instead, there's no word. There's no word as a consumer on how to make a choice. Doesn't that seem odd to you that uh, if someone says, drive a car, you say, listen, well, which car is the best? Or you're offered any type of consumer item. Why can't, why can't you make an intelligent choice based on what's the best? Our governments are holding all the data. Why do you have to listen to me? Why, why is a government not providing any information on efficacy? They're not the same, by the way. They're not the same. Even out of the clinical trials, Pfizer and Moderna very short, over two months with the older versions of the virus before it mutated, they looked like they're about 90% efficacy, but very few people got exposed to COVID. Less than 1% of people got exposed. So it's not a very good challenge. But Johnson Johnson and AstraZeneca were about 70%. Why did Johnson & Johnson even get on the market? Why, why is 70 as good as 90? Do you see what I mean? So yeah, there's something, absolutely. Yeah. There's something yeah. odd about that. If, if it's about COVID, well, why don't they actually tell us the winner? And why don't we pick the best choice? So that should seem very odd to you. The fact that doctors aren't treating it should be odd to you. And I can tell you what ought to really seem odd to you is why aren't people concerned about safety? These products are brand new technologies. They're genetic transfer technologies. Um, they've never been used in mankind before. 
they were rushed through the development process, no studies on pregnant women, no studies on COVID recovery patients, no studies on women of child brain potential. They're rushed through. And Americans and Canadians are asked to get in line and take these based on faith. Say, listen, we, we, the government's telling you it's safe and effective. Take it. You need to take it to go to school. Okay, I'll take it on faith. If, you, if the governments are going to ask us to do that, there should be weekly safety briefings. There should be monthly reviews, safety reports, you know, committees of doctors trying to study this, working in teams. Uh, what's going good? What's going bad? Oh, a patient died over here. Why did they die? Uh, maybe it was a reaction to another drug that they had and the vaccine interacts with the drug. Uh, maybe it's in COVID recovery patients who don't need the vaccine. Maybe they're having allergic reactions. Where is the attention to safety? Where's the concern about Canadians and Americans and safety with this new product? I mean, you know, the data are absolutely alarming. The fact that we have had no data safety monitoring boards, there are no committees, there's no review. And when you sign up for the vaccine, you're not given a portfolio of information on safety. You're actually going, you're going the center. The consent form's pretty brief. I've looked at it, says, listen, we don't know if this is going to work. We don't know if it's safe. Here, sign here. And you walk out and you get a sticker saying, I got vaccinated. You know, as, as we're closing on time here, Peter, I know you got another, uh, uh, I know your night's probably awfully full, uh, booster shots, right? Like our government's already come out and, and said they're, they're, they've got the next five years booked for us, you know, like it's coming Our and it's Pfizer, you know, you, you mentioned Pfizer as low as 17% in Israel. That hurts my head. Um, our boot, like what can people vaccinated, unvaccinated, like, are booster shots going to work? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. Pfizer, the dose of Pfizer per shot is 30 micrograms. It's messenger RNA. Do you know the dose for Moderna? It's a hundred micrograms. How come the public isn't asking about even the dose? How come the governments aren't talking about, maybe there's a dose effect. Maybe Moderna's looking a little better right now because it's a higher dose of messenger RNA. People are not asking any reasonable questions about the performance of these vaccines. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I watched CNBC last week and in the morning, I watched this show with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Hawkins. And Joe Kernan is, is just a regular guy. He's about my age. He asked, um, he asked Scott Gottlieb, who's the former chair of the FDA. Scott's a very smart guy. He's on the board of Pfizer. So he really wants to sell vaccines, right? And, and, and Gottlieb is starting to soften his thing. Well, the you know, the vaccine's not completely holding out and directly he's kind of, yeah, I can see he's starting to walk back the efficacy of Pfizer. And then Joe says, well, we've heard about boosters and if Pfizer's not doing co too good against Delta, Scott, are you guys going to adjust just the dose so it covers the Delta? And Joe's like, yeah, like, that's a pretty reasonable question, right? The flu shot changes each year to kind of cover the, the strains. <laughs> Gottlieb goes, no. He goes, it's just a dose of the same thing again. <laughs> then Joe Curtin, he goes, is that going to work? <laughs> Even Joe was saying, is that going to work? All the media is, is, I think, probably just by their nature, they've been sold on the vaccine. So they're very pro-vaccine. But even Joe Kernan had to ask a really common question. If Pfizer's failing against Delta right now, I mean, basically a free fall failure is just juicing with some more Pfizer going to make a difference. I mean, think about that. Oh man. I, I, once again, you know, as I dig into, and I appreciate you coming along and, and giving me so much of your time, Peter. Um, it just, it spurs on so many questions and, and that's why I'm glad you gave me, well, I'm not glad. I wish you would have given me as much time as I needed, but I'm glad you gave me longer than say 15 minutes to just sit down and have a chat because, uh, there's just so much and the world is moving so fast and so many things are changing so quickly. Um, you know, in Canada, I'm sure in the United States, we just opened up. We just had things going the right way. And then all of a sudden now it's, you can already see the, the, the storm clouds brewing. And I just think uh, if, if people are, are listening to this and want to find some different things, you, you mentioned prevent, uh, preventable treatment or early on treatment, sorry. Uh, is there anywhere they can go to find that, like links, uh, websites? Yeah. And could you list off a couple of those yeah. just in case they want to take a look? Sure. And I'll be happy to send these to you. These are really important. So 
the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, that's kind of the lead organization that features early treatment. They have chapters in every state in the United States. They have the list of treating doctors in the United States. They have a worldwide list of treating doctors and they have uh, uh, the treatment protocols. The Truth for Health Foundation, it's a charitable organization. They also have the early treatment protocols. They're, all, they're also an opportunity to donate. By the way, um, the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, they don't take any uh, donations, uh, any third-party donations, but uh, Truth for Health Foundation is a charitable organization. Now it's faith-based and uh, they are really raising the issue of vaccine safety. So if you want to uh, find out about vaccine safety and what the faith, faith community um, is looking at in early treatment, Truth for Health Foundation, Frontline Critical Care Consortium, FLCC, they're very popular. They've got very easy to understand protocols. They've got a list of treating doctors. You have the American Frontline Doctors, uh, AFLDS, they are probably more based on censorship and, and, and freedom issues and things of this nature. You have the telemedicine services, really important. Uh, the big one is myfreedoctor.com. It's head by Ben Marble, myfreedoctor.com. It's free. And so uh, patients can make a donation if they want to. It works on charity and they do an intake and they get the medications prescribed and they know how to do it. They know how to get it through the pharmacies. They even will use mail order pharmacies as the local pharmacies deny patients treatment. Um, you have uh, Speak With an MD, a for-profit one, um, Frontline MDS uh, for-profit and there's others. But in the uh, Truth for Health treatment guide is a list of all the telemedicine services. In Canada, uh, there is a development of My Free Doctor com Canada, and that's being developed by Dr. Ben Marble, so the Canadians can look forward to that. In Canada, there are some leading treating doctors, Ira Bernstein in Toronto, Stephen Malthouse out in British Columbia. Uh, there's, you know, some of the doctors have gotten famous, uh, unfortunately, like me, doctors who are just uh, presenting the data. Charles Hoffey um, has been held up as a Canadian hero. Uh, Dr. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Francis. Uh, Byron Bridles, uh, another Byron, one. Byron Bridles, Christian yeah. Francis. Um, you know, these hero doctors in Canada, Jennifer Hibbard's another one, um, are, are out there. And, you know, Canada is very manageable. If you actually just treated your problem in Canada with early treatment, and I've always thought if the vaccines were used in a reasonable, not an indiscriminate way, but a discriminate way. And I've always thought United States, maybe 5, 10, 15 million people vaccinated, the nursing home workers, and maybe the seniors in a careful way, uh, provided the vaccines were safe, that would be it. But when you try to vaccinate the whole population, kids, students, people who don't need it, all we're going to do is breed these variants. The variants are going to blow past the vaccines and the vaccines are going to make things worse. And right now, as you sit here today, the data are suggesting the vaccines are dragging out this pandemic. They're making things worse. And all we're going to do, you know, we got the Lambda variant coming. That was because down in Peru, they over-vaccinated. And there's a paper by Arcevito that clearly nails that down. That Lambda is coming because of over-vaccination. Now we got to deal with that. We got Ada coming out of California. This idea, we can't vaccinate our way out of this. Even Lannis Pauling says, don't vaccinate for the common cold. It's, it's a mess. You, if you want to give a flu shot to some seniors or COVID shot to some seniors, okay. But, you know, kids and people like this, people like you and me, it's a cold. Come on, you don't need a vaccine for a cold. It's just easy treatment. There's just no way. And you don't vaccinate somebody to protect somebody else. That's the biggest falsehood. You know, I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm in a hospital. They ask me to take the hepatitis B vaccine. It's not to protect other people. It's to protect me. If I got stabbed with a needle or, or, or a scalpel, I need to be protected. Uh, they ask me to take the flu shot. That's not, that's not for somebody else. That's if, if somebody from nursing comes in, coughs at me, it's so I don't get the flu. When you go to college in the United States, you're asked to take the meningococcal vaccine. That's not to protect everybody else. That's to protect your kid because somebody, they could get meningococcus in the dorms. So vaccination is always for the person. So someone your age, you have zero benefit from the vaccine. Young people, anybody, any young person, there's no, because COVID's so easy and so mild and young people, and even our US FDA is speaking to you. They're telling you, don't take the vaccine. The vaccine that causes myocarditis, Pfizer, Moderna, heart inflammation. We can't get it to stop. And people are being hospitalized and developing heart failure. And there's been some cardiac deaths. Don't take the vaccine. The, the, the FDA is telling us, don't take Johnson & Johnson, blood clots in women age 18 to 48, Guillain-Barre syndrome, paralysis in people. Canadian authorities say, uh, AstraZeneca, don't take it. You get the um, uh, Bell's policy, also get the blood clots. So our regulatory agencies, despite the hubris, they're actually trying to tell us this. They're trying to warn us 
But at the same time, the universities are saying, listen, we don't care about blood clots. We don't care about getting paralyzed. We don't care, care if someone dies, take the vaccine. So something is in the minds of our university officials. The same thing that's in the minds of doctors. Whatever's in the minds of doctors telling them not to treat is in the minds of university officials to say, give the vaccine. And if it causes harm, we don't care. There's something about in the minds of people where they don't care about injuring others right now. And it's a really dark time in the world because of that. I'll let that be the last word. Well, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate you giving me an hour of your time and uh, I hope we get to do this again in the future, but thanks again for hopping on Peter. Okay. Thanks for having me. Hey folks, thanks for joining us today. If you just stumbled on the show, please click subscribe, then scroll to the bottom and rate and leave a review. I promise it helps. Remember, every Monday and Wednesday, we will have a new guest sitting down to share their story. The Sean Newman Podcast is available for free on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever else you get your podcast fix. Until next time. Hey, Keeners. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Like I say, uh, Monday, we will be back to an SMP archive. We're just going to kind of rotate them. I uh, came out of the blue. I was going to get to sit with Peter on Tuesday night. And I just went, man, I can't sit on this for a week. I'm, you know, in our world, everything seems to be moving so fast and so much talk about uh, the Delta variant and everything else. I just wanted to get some information that I, that I get and pass along as quickly as, as possible. So no worries. Monday, we'll have an SMP archive uh, episode. I appreciate everybody reaching out and, and lending support and, and your thoughts. I always enjoy hearing what you think of, of uh, all the different episodes. You can always hit me up. Uh, um, just check in the, the show notes. You can get my, my, my cell number and, and shoot me a text. I always enjoy, always enjoy hearing from all of you. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of your week. And uh, we'll catch up to you on Monday. All right? Until then.